Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 12th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It was asked once of a famous peripatetic American. I shall ask it again of a different one. Where in the world is Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State? So you remember a week ago, North Korea set off a hydrogen bomb said to be 10 times the size of the one that leveled Hiroshima. I, n- I never can do with the this many times or that many times size the bomb comparisons. Just, just know it's a really big bomb. And here's what Tillerson did and said and opined. Nothing, nothing, and nothing. In fact, reporters who cover the State Department didn't really know where he was. They found out that he was in Texas. He needed a a weekend break. Nikki Haley, UN ambassador, was left to, and I think she quite eagerly enjoyed this, define U.S. foreign relations when it comes to our biggest or one of our biggest. There are a lot of threats. One of our biggest threats. Tillerson, pretty quiet. Dan Dresner, professor at Tufts, writer in the Washington Post, also notes this about Rex Tillerson, who wants to talk very quietly, be the subtle secretary of state. Here's how Dresner defines it and describes it. Tillerson's theory of diplomacy is bananas. And Robbie Gramer, who does great stuff for foreign policy, uh, was writing about Tillerson's main goal, pretty much it seems why he took the job, not to just talk softly and stay out of the public eye, but to lessen, to decrease the amount of funding his own department gets, which is quite, quite crazy. Robbie Gramer writes in a stark repudiation of the Trump administration, Lawmakers on Thursday passed a spending bill that overturned the president's steep proposed cuts to foreign aid and diplomacy. So as much as the president and Rex Tillerson say, hey, why don't you sideline the Department of State? Even the Republican Congress is having none of it. Remember a couple of weeks ago when Rex Tillerson was on the Fox News channel and was asked by Chris Wallace about the president's statements in Charlottesville? He said this. Yes, the president speaks for himself, but increasingly Rex Tillerson speaks for no one. Just like to point out, Secretary of State is a fairly important job. You know, the first Secretary of State was Jefferson. He went on to be the third president, and then the fourth president, the fifth president, and the sixth president, Monroe Madison, John Quincy Adams, they were all Secretaries of State. So it's no longer this launching pad to the highest office in the land, but it is still up there. Unless you're Rex Tillerson. And your Rex, not in effect, yo. On the show today, I will spiel about a three-part series in The Atlantic by uh, my former Slate colleague, Emily Yaffe, about the issue of campus rape. But first, it is the return of Maria Konnikova. She is here to tell you and inform you on the advisability of just eating as much soil as you can. It's time once again to play our favorite game, a game we haven't played in a long time. The specific name of this game today is Let's Eat Dirt, but the overall general rubric in which we place Let's Eat Dirt 
is Is That Bullshit? We're joined by Maria Konnikova. She is the author of The Confidence Game. She knows all about chance and grifting and Sherlock Holmes and all these things. And she weighs in on scientific topics and answers the question for us, Is That Bullshit? Hello, Maria. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Mike. So as I mentioned, we're going to go off into the dirt. And there are a, a general category of things we talk about in this segment, which is things that people once thought were true and don't, things people never thought were true but now are, in, are embracing. And then there are and then there are the things that have come back in vogue. I think don't eat dirt is probably something that people have said as long as there have been people and dirt, but are they right? Maybe we should eat dirt because I'm hearing it builds up immunity. What are you hearing? The the idea that it builds up immunity has been around for a while. Right. Um, it got an official name in 1989 called the hygiene hypothesis. Hmm. Um, so a lot of people had been noticing this trend that in the civilized kind of world, the more civilized we got, the cleaner we got, the more antibiotics we got, the more sanitation we got. Basically, as all of these things have developed in society, we've also developed more allergies and things that seem to kind of go go counter to the health benefits that we're trying to accrue. Right. So what ended up happening was this guy, David Strachan, who's an epidemiologist, this guy decided to look at a bunch of people, over 17,000 British kids over time, to see, you know, is this actually related? And he decided... Separated them from dirt eaters to non-dirt eaters. <laughs> this was not a controlled experiment. Um, but he looked at family size, and he figured out that kids with bigger families actually had fewer allergies. Hmm. And he hypothesized that this was because they were being exposed to more pathogens, because kids are dirty when there are lots of kids, you know, you're older brother gets the chicken pox and your older sister comes home with the flu and this happens and that happens and you are exposed to all of these different germs and your own immune system gets better. But if you're an only kid and you don't get all of this exposure, then maybe that's not going to be the case and you're going to develop allergic reactions. This is where the original term, the hygiene hypothesis came from. And it was because of these dual trends um, of cleanliness on the one hand, allergies on the other hand. And by the way, this is just a trend that was seen at the time in places like the United States, Great Britain, the first world. It's a very developed world. And it was not being seen in places like China or India. The Purell using world. And I've also heard the hygiene hypothesis or the dirt part of it. It it has been said that people who grow up in farms, for instance, are free of allergies. Yes, not free, but less likely to develop allergies. So over time, people people really loved this. It sounded awesome. Like, yeah, you know, you we are all clean freaks, and the fact that we're clean freaks is actually having all of these bad effects. We're purelling our way to oblivion. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. We should all, you know, go and expose ourselves to all sorts of bacteria. Lick and, a road. Exactly. Yeah. Go go lick a road. Well, yeah. actually, you know, still one of my most kind of yeah. traumatic memories is when my niece, who was then, I believe, two years old, maybe three, was waiting for me at Back Bay Station in Boston when I was coming <laughs> from New York, which is... Um, to anyone who's been to Back Bay Station, you know it's not the yeah. best place in the world. Yeah. So here I am coming up the escalator, and I see my family. You know, my mom's there, my sister's there, my my little niece is there, and she's very excited. And she starts coming forward, and then she all of a sudden 
drops on all fours, sticks out her tongue, and licks the floor of uh, Back Bay Station. station. Yeah. And I just kind of dropped my bags and had this horrified expression on my face, as did everyone else present. Mm-hmm. Um, she's still alive. She's and how many allergies does she have? A lot. Oh, she's like, <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> she's allergic to a lot of things. If only there was some peanut butter on the floor at that time. I wasn't going to mention that she had all these allergies, but that brings up an interesting point, which is that the more data we've gotten, the more complex this relationship has. I hate data. Has turned out. Yeah, yeah. because it I seems, like a little data. Yeah, it seems so nice and clean. Yeah. Right? Clean. Uh, uh-huh. Unlike, <laughs> unlike Back Bay Station, yeah. Exactly. Unlike Back Bay Station. People started researching this because it is an interesting hypothesis. And you do wonder, like, why do we suddenly have more allergies? Like, let me just give you some numbers. Right now, it seems like food allergies in preschool children is as high as 10% in Western countries. And just allergies in general, it seems like about 25% of the population yeah. in Western countries has some sort of an allergy. Maybe, that is really, really high. It's really high. Maybe it seems even more exacerbated because, you know, if one kid, if Trevor in the third grade has a nut allergy, the whole third grade has to be a, a nut-conscious yeah, environment. for sure. Now, in contrast, in China, for instance, the prevalence right now in preschool kids is about 2%. Wow. So that's actually a huge, huge difference. Don't worry. Um, Donald Trump's going to even the playing field. <laughs> Don't you worry. And we also have things like diabetes. We do. But um, that I know about. That I know why it happens. That's not has nothing to do with licking dirt. That inflammatory with- bowel disease. Oh, yeah. So all sorts of things that are actually much, much higher in Western Europe than in Eastern Europe even. Mm-hmm. So like, for instance, for inflammatory bowel disease in Western Europe, it's 6.5 per 100,000 as compared to 3.1. So twice as a little more than twice as much in Western Europe. So a lot of these seem to suggest that, yeah, something's happening. And yeah, we definitely have become much more sanitized as a society. So what's going on? It's not as simple as let's expose people to disease and all of a sudden they're going to be less allergic to things. So in the past, for instance, there were data that showed that people who were exposed to measles, for instance, um, had fewer allergies. That data ended up being completely flawed. It's actually not true. It was a false correlation. Right. So now they've started looking at a lot of different things. So it turns out that there's a difference between just being exposed to bacteria in general um, and being exposed to disease. Right. So if you're exposed to disease, that doesn't necessarily do anything for allergies. Mm. So some people have tried to rebrand this, the old friends theory that hasn't really stuck by saying that, oh, there's just good bacteria in the world and it starts at birth. So if you're actually born through vaginal birth, you're exposed to kind of all of the vaginal tract and all of that bacteria colonizes you, colonizes your stomach, your intestines, all of this stuff, and you're coated in it. And these are kind of your old friends, right? And then you start getting kind of these friends throughout life. Now, Okay, that's why the phrase doesn't do anything for anyone. (laughs) It's the old friends theory, by which you mean, by which I mean vaginal birth and touching bacteria. Like no one would think of that. Exactly. So it's like playing it, playing in the dirt and kind of, you know, being exposed to that kind of relatively harmless bacteria that nevertheless is very helpful to humans. We have tons of bacteria living in us. We've done, we've done bullshit. Um, things about microbiomes, right? Yes. So we know that literally we have... about bullshit. Exactly. Well, so are you are you saying though that kids who were born cesarean section have a higher susceptibility to 
these diseases and allergies? So, so I am saying that, actually, mm. yes. There have been data that show that. And the prevalence of cesarean birth is going up. Yeah, it's the most common surgery in the United States. Yep. Kids who have been exposed to antibiotics in the first two years of life also have a higher, much higher prevalence of allergies. Hmm. That's also something that has gone up. Hmm. One of the reasons that this might be the case is that antibiotics actually screw with your with your microbiome. There's the biome again. Yep, exactly. And so the old friends <laughs> that... Oh, God. I'm, I'm just so not going to say that again. No. I'm just not going to say that it's torture. The bacteria that we have changes with exposure to antibiotics. And when you're, you know, when you're very, very little... Um, that actually can have very profound effects. Diet affects your microbiome. One of the other differences between the developing world and the developed world is how much whole fiber do you eat? How many vegetables? Kind of what does your diet look like? And so you start actually seeing that in, in even third world countries that now have changed their diet to more processed food, which is happening because, you know, McDonald's has taken over the world. In places like that, actually, allergies are also going up. So that has nothing to do with dirt. That has everything to do with diet. So you start seeing that it's actually very complex. It's not that dirt doesn't matter. It's that you also have all of these other factors. One of the other things that actually might be protective um, that's not dirt per se is parasites. So it turns out that in certain populations that have been exposed to parasitic worms when young, they have all sorts of other problems, but they don't have allergies. <laughs> so it's kind of a trade-off. Yeah. So so you start seeing, you know, this is actually a very complicated question. And the hygiene hypothesis is kind of a misnomer because it's not about hygiene. And if all of a sudden we stopped washing our hands, that would be really, really bad. Yeah. Um, and but we'd just again, be getting I, sick again. But I also think that, yes, of course, we should wash our hands. But at the same time, we shouldn't always rush over with the sanitary wipe and the Purell the moment the kid gets his hands dirty. This is absolutely true of little kids. And actually, what I would say is that it can be good for kids to go to preschool, yes. um, to actually hang out with other kids, to actually kind of play. Yes, before they start eating with their hands, they should probably wash their hands. There's, you know, there's a fine line. It doesn't mean that, oh, you dropped this on the toilet floor. Don't worry, it's still clean. Okay, the toilet floor. But I just Even, imagine this like a barnyard, you, you're hugging a goat, <laughs> then you're going in, you're eating an egg. That's the way to live, I say. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And there was just a, a very recent study done of about 500 people. It was a longitudinal sample that was studied from birth in the Philippines. And they looked at a bunch of different factors that they tracked over the life course, including um, socioeconomic status in childhood, extended absence of a parent in childhood, because that's been associated with childhood stress, mm-hmm. which in turn has been associated with allergies. So mm. this this becomes even more complicated. Exposure to animal feces in infancy. Is, that, so like, is the hypothesis that that's good or bad? It could be good. So people who own pets yes. might actually be good. Yep. It might also be bad because remember, we have the cat parasites that might take sure. over your brain. And there's also breastfeeding, yeah. which season you were born in, the dry season or the wet season, and birth. Okay. So, so all of these different things. I'm going to say a vaginally born, <laughs> breastfed, uh, goat hugging, dog <laughs> crap, uh, occasional dog crap exposed, what was a monsoon, dry season, non-monsoon baby has an advantage in life. Who has stable parents. Who has stable parents. 
because the monsoon season did not sweep any of them away, nor did they get into fights about who's going to clean yeah, the Yeah, so dog this is still up. very preliminary, and they yeah. don't, they were just trying to look at all of these sorts of things, but they might have an advantage. Um, like I said, the study just came out, so we, it's one, one data point. Um, How correlative is is there one of those that's more correlative with no, health? No, so they than were others? actually so they didn't do the data analysis on that intense a level. They were actually looking at methylation patterns of DNA. What's methylation mean? Um, so basically, we all are born with you know our genetic code. Yeah, and then the different parts of DNA through environmental exposure. This is called epigenetics. Yeah, um, the methylation patterns, which are kind of how it's expressed and how it's expressed in you Uh changes. So the exact same strand, if it's methylated differently, different parts of it will be activated in different ways. So even identical twins, their methylation patterns start differing in utero because they've already been separated. Okay, so let us play our uh, branded game, Is That Bullshit? Geophagy, the eating of dirt, okay, (laughs) or just in general, extra exposure to dirt is good for you in the long run. Is that bullshit? If you are little, but not too little, Mm -hmm. because... You have no immune system when you're an infant, so don't put your infant in dirt. Don't put and your infant no. in dirt. No, but when you're a toddler, yeah. should you spend some time outside yeah. playing? Yeah. yeah. That's generally a good thing. Should you spend some time with animals? Yeah. Should you not be purelled all that time? Probably. Probably. Um, is this actually responsible for the rise of allergies? No. Not in isolation, and there are lots of other things going on. It's one of many, many things that's contributing, and we can't take it to the extreme. So you still need to you know, wash your hands before you're eating. You still need to do kind of basic hygiene things. Otherwise, we're just going to have a lot of really sick kids. Because, by the way, there are more allergies in the developed world, but there's a lot less childhood mortality. All right, there it is. Uh, some good news, some bad news for the uh, dirt, dirt for the dirty parent, for the parent who is inclined to allow their kid to wallow. I thank you, Maria Konnikova. Uh, you, you're a sensation of methylation. You're the author of <laughs> the Confidence Game, and you play as that bullshit with us. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, a series of articles by Emily Yaffe about rape and sexual assault on campus in the Atlantic caught my eye. Yaffe, a friend formerly of Slate, she's one of the foremost authorities on the subject simply because of how her brain works. She questions dogma. She seeks out fact. She's an excellent reporter embodying the best practices of journalism and inquiry. We had Vanessa Gregoriadis on the show a couple weeks ago. She talked about her book, Blurred Lines. I'm very interested in the topic. I find it fascinating, and I think it's because of three reasons. One, human compassion. Two, my sense of justice, and they're slightly different things. In fact, one side is with the victim and one side is with the accused, so I balance these things. But three, it serves to give me an insight as to where we are now with thorny issues in 2017. Just acknowledging it's a thorny issue is taking a stand to some degree, and that's a very 2017 aspect to this problem. Now, it seems clear to me, if you look at the recent history of campus rape, it it was a big problem, still is, an epidemic. Okay, that's a loaded term, let's put it aside, but clearly lots of young women were being forced into unwanted sexual encounters, and lots of police departments and DA offices were unwilling to do anything about it, and lots of colleges were looking the other way. So women spoke up, 
Women organized, some women radicalized, journalists reported, and colleges began taking their duties of in loco parentis seriously, and the Obama administration nudged them along significantly with something called a Dear Colleague letter, essentially putting them on notice that if you don't seriously investigate these charges, you could be brought up as violating Title IX, discriminating based on sex. So to correct the problem, to address it, some things were done. But the main thing that was done is that there was a redefinition of the standard of what constituted unwanted sexual assault, the burden of proof. When it comes to a crime, we stick to the criminal standard, which, as you know, is beyond a reasonable doubt. There are other standards, lesser standard. There's the clear and convincing evidence standard. So if beyond a reasonable doubt is something like, I don't know, I've heard it described as 98, 99% certainty that uh, the person did it, clear and convincing might be 75%. But the standard they use with sexual assault on campus is preponderance of the evidence. Penn State literally defines this as, if you think there is a 50.01% chance that the accusation has merit, then you find the accused as having committed the offense. Well, it seems inevitable, in fact, it is inevitable, that if you lower the standard to 50.01%, you're going to have a lot more findings that an assault took place, which is the intention. The guy who uh, an adjudicator would find that it seems that they committed the offense, but there are one or two niggling questions. Under clear and convincing, I'm not sure what you do. Under reasonable doubt, you would have to let that guy go. Under preponderance of the evidence, that guy would be held responsible. Now again, not criminally responsible, not deprived of liberty by the state, but held to account, expelled, loses time, loses money, loses status, loses academic credit. It's really consequential. People who defend using preponderance of the evidence, cite the fact that they're not denying life or liberty. The standard needn't be that high if all we're doing is fact-finding. In fact, I would say that most decisions in life are done according to a preponderance of the evidence standard. You don't even think about it, but what are you going to eat? Are you going to cross the street? Who are you going to be friends with? I mean, that's how our reptilian brain works. It chooses things essentially when it thinks about things at all based on the preponderance of the evidence. In other words, well, that seemed like a better idea than the alternative. But if you have a preponderance of the evidence standard, if you go by 50.01% proof, you are going to, as a matter of logic, as a matter of math, just get many, 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 many more false positives. Under reasonable doubt, you get false negatives, which means letting rapists go, sometimes to rape again. That's terrible, of course. But in this system, you're going to make a lot more mistakes about who you affirm as a rapist, as a sexual assaulter. If I told you to eyeball two piles of bricks and to pick the heavier one, and one pile was 10 pounds and one pile was 90 pounds, you'd get it right almost all the time. You'd know by looking at it. But if I told you to assess a 51-pound pile and a 49-pound pile, you would often be wrong. I mean, one pile is heavier, tips the scales just as much as that 90-10 pile, but you would be wrong. And being wrong doesn't make you a bad person or an inaccurate brick assessor. It just makes you human. You're using a standard with more mistakes of this particular kind built into the system. By the way, I shall now acknowledge it's not a perfect analogy because even if preponderance of the evidence is the standard, it doesn't mean that every case is, you know, 50.01 to 49.99. Some of these cases would satisfy whatever the burden is. But the point I'm making is that it's inevitable, it's built in that more mistakes of this kind are going to be made. Assessing a young man as having committed a transgression versus judging him 
as not having committed the transgression. You are going to get more mistakes as having assessed him to have done the transgression. It's a problem for a couple of reasons. One, it's historically the ideal in America to privilege the right of the accused. This isn't a criminal court. I understand that. But it's a serious accusation. And by tradition, also for good reasons, which take into account how human cognition works, we have built guardrails in for the accused. But now our society has shifted and we're giving more favor to the accuser. There's a lot of reason to argue that this shift is what needed to happen, especially if you take into account the idea that sexual assault victims are uniquely dismissed among crime victims. Where the pendulum should land is part of the debate to have, but to pretend it's not a legitimate question is to be dishonest. And this is where the how we argue in 2017 part comes in. The impetus behind all of this and the Department of Education looking into the standards is that Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, this is her initiative and she just has no credibility among liberals, among moderates of good faith. Her top deputy on this issue is Candace Jackson. She uh, a few months ago told this to the New York Times that for most sexual assault investigations, there's, quote, not even an accusation that these accused students overrode the will of a young woman. Rather, the accusations, 90% of them, fall into the category of we were both drunk, we broke up. Now this, this is an educational term. This is called pulling a stat out of your ass. How it got there? Well, maybe Candace Jackson was drunk. But the poison around the person of Betsy DeVos, and also the stupid statement I just read, allows for easy dismissal of the complaints of college students who were incorrectly found to have committed sexual assault. And on the right, it's just as bad. So many websites cheering on DeVos will have a headline, here's how feminists want to steal your rights, or some such. That's why Emily Yaffe's series is so good. Part one was about the exact state of due process. Not only does it discuss the lower standard of proof, but it discusses the changing standard of the crime itself. Many schools have defined assault as something less than force. Uh, something like coercion, and something less than sex, or something less than even genital contact. Part two of the series about the science of trauma, there is so much about the process that makes defense impossible. Part three is about the disproportionate number of minority students who are accused of the crimes. For years, I don't know, let's go back five, ten years, every day you read a horrific story about a young woman assaulted on campus, campus doing nothing about it. But in this series by Emily Offey, There are lots and lots of infuriating anecdotes about accusations that seem really far-fetched, yet they lead to expulsion. I would say when the stories are about unpunished victimizers, my heart goes out to the victims, but when the story is about a falsely accused alleged perpetrator, then my sense of injustice kicks in. So much of where we stand on this issue is how we define stasis and what we want to do about it. If you're an anti-rape activist, stasis is that we live in a rape culture and that society is blind to this problem. Uh, To Emily Yaffe, to some academics who are pushing back against due process encroachment, stasis is different. Stasis is that accusation is now taken as proof and that it's easy within the culture of the college campus for the innocent to be railroaded. Here's a litmus test. How often do you assume false accusations are made? Anti-sexual assault activists persistently cite the figure, they're only made 2 to 8% of the time. The meta-analysis that cited those figures is called false reports, 
moving beyond the issue to successfully investigate and prosecute non-stranger sexual assault. Let me read a quote. Because the actual false reporting rate is only 2 to 8%, it shows the American public dramatically overestimates the percentage of sexual assault reports that are false. Now, I have to say that 2 to 8% figure, that meta-analysis, I read all these studies. They're sometimes 25 or even 40 years old. There's only one study that's an American study. But the 2 to 8% figure has become doctrine on American college campuses. It's conventional wisdom. But I wonder, if we knew that 8% of all attempted murders were based on false reports, they weren't really attempted murders, what would we do once someone was accused? Should we, would we say, well, it's only 8%. we should believe the accuser? Or would we say 8% is pretty high? Let's not have a knee-jerk belief in accusations. And it's odd to me because the most high-profile initiative about false accusations is the Innocence Project. It's freed 350 prisoners. They're often serving life sentences, sometimes death sentences. The majority were convicted of sexual assault, falsely convicted. I don't come to any of these conclusions because I have an indifference to justice. It's because I have a commitment to it. I think, think I'm being fair. I understand signing on to a Trump education department initiative is a bridge too far for a lot of people. I get that. I'm just asking for an accounting and consideration of the consequence of the changing definitions of assault, a reconsideration of the arguments that are cited as exculpatory evidence, and honestly grappling with the very tough task of defining justice not as more expulsions or more exonerations, but of more fairness. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Mary Wilson. She is trying to keep tabs on VA head David Shulkin. Where's that guy been? Dan Schrader always asks, hey, what's up with Linda McMahon of the Small Business Administration? I mean, ever since SummerSlam. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, dying for a status report on Undersecretary of State for Public Diplomacy and Public Affairs, Bruce Wharton, holdover from the Obama administration. Is it because his name is Wharton? I ask you. The gist, tracking the whereabouts of Tex Rillerson, a former State Department employee who now works at Exxon, shows up for his job every day and is looking to increase the budget. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>